Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused about the latest health study as I am about the latest health study. And that is because I am not Matt Fox, nor am I Chris Gill or Don Thea. I am Nick Guler, and you might recognize my name from the end of every Free Associations episode when Matt thanks me for my sound and editing work and frequently apologizes for making that work even more challenging when the three of them come up with things that would, to say the least, threaten our PG rating. The reason that you are not hearing the dulcet tones of Matt Fox, the puns and eccentric but fascinating ramblings of Chris Gill, or the half-serious complaining of Don Thea, usually brought on by the puns and ramblings of Chris Gill, is that Chris and Don are away on vacation, and Matt is in the process of moving back across the pond to join us once again in the godly studio. In the meantime, I've curated another collection of some of the best of Amazing and Amusing. I hope you'll enjoy. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I I had originally found this paper in Nature, uh which is called The Genome of the Offspring of a Neanderthal Mother and a Denisovan Father. Oh, I read it with great enthusiasm, thinking that I was going to talk all about this. Uh-huh. But it, it, it became very complicated very quickly, and I, I, I couldn't understand it. Uh-huh. So I'm, it's like the bees that can't count, that can't, can't count past the, zero. The bees that have back scratchers? Or the bees <laughs> That's that a different count, article. The bees that can count to zero. The bees that can count to zero, but not beyond. Got it. And I, was, I would just like to point out that I can do that, too. I don't think the issue was they couldn't count beyond. <laughs> oh, drat. So anyway, um, to, uh, to summarize this paper in one word, there was this, there's a cave in Eurasia, and they found some word. skeletons. Uh, and in the skeleton, there was some skeletons that came from Neanderthal lineage and some from Denisovan lineage, which is like Western Eurasia as opposed to Eastern Eurasia. And then there was a fragment of a tibia of a um, of an individual, turned out to be a 13-year-old girl, uh, based on looking at the thickness of the cortex of the bone, yeah. that had a 50-50 mix of Neanderthal and Denisovan. And they're like, okay, well, that could be because she came from a, a blended set of parents who also had 50-50, and then she would also be 50-50. And then they did some complicated genetic analyses, which I could not understand. But it turns out, no, she's the daughter of a Neanderthal. And a Denisovan. So this was a mixing of these two rather disparate lineages of, of early hominids. Anyway, um, that's since that's all I could get out of it, I, I found another paper this morning, which uh, I'm going to summarize and said, which is actually from our pal. <laughs> How do he slip two in there? John Ioannidis. Mm-hmm. Um, Go ahead. Who uh, wrote an essay here with uh, Kevin Boyack and Richard Clavins called The Scientists Who Publish a Paper Every Five Days. And you found this all on your own. <laughs> Um, I did. That's amazing. This was also in nature. That's amazing. That I found this on my own? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's from the email I sent you yesterday with that article in it. Did you send me this? <laughs> <laughs> that's twice in two days that you've sent me an email and I've ignored it. Ever read, do you ever oh, read Matt's emails? Don, no. Don, you're not Matt, allowed to do that. Don't, don't develop a complex. It's Go not ahead. what you think. Go. Anyway. so <laughs> This was going to be an in-depth segment in a few weeks. So there are these this sort of elite cadre of researchers out there, uh, which John and Richard and Kevin called hyper-prolific authors, which would not include us. the three of us. <laughs> No. Who have is there, like, is there a category of sloth published authors? thousands of papers? Yep. And this this is one guy. The guy who wins the race here is a a, a Japanese uh, materials scientist called Akihisa Inoue from Tohoku University, and he has published two thousand five hundred sixty six full articles in Scopus. How many? Two thousand five hundred sixty six. That's impressive. Now that's what they said. That's impressive, but they also said, "Come on," because if you do the math, they're like publishing a paper every five days, and that does seem a little bit like how does how do how do mere mortals do that? Yeah. Well, he's on a streak. Um, he, he's been on a streak for a decade, it seems, more than a streak. Yeah, he doesn't sleep. So they, 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 they trolled Scopus, which is one of these online uh, databases for papers, and they found all these guys who had super high uh, publication rates. And then they noticed that a lot of them were for like, particle physics, where they have 1,000 authors on a paper. And so they're like, okay, that is a different publishing model, so we're going to get rid of all of those. Because that, that's clearly just the particle physics people. Everybody cites everybody, and everybody's on everybody's paper. And so it's just like that author. It's like a cast. It's like Cleopatra. Say what now? Or El Cid. 
you know, the, the classic movies of Cecil B. DeMille back in the day when they had cast of thousands. Yeah. So, you know, Leslie knows. Okay. It's a great movie. Great. Okay. But <laughs> getting rid of the particle physicists, then you have like the Chinese and the, the Korean authors where the problem is disambiguation of very common names. Like Zhang, we had, we had two authors on today's yep. paper called Zhang. And so it is, is really hard actually to figure out who is a unique author because there's so many people called Zhang. And so they, they realize that this is practically an insoluble problem, particularly in Scopus, which does a very poor job of disambiguating names. And so then they're left with a, a you know, still rather large those. group of around 900 apparently true hyper authors. And so hyper from publishers. that, they found 265 that they reached out to and 81 of them replied. Now, this is where it really gets interesting because then these people who wrote back and they, the questions were, tell us how it is that you publish yeah. a paper every five days. Like, what is part. your secret? Yeah. You know, like, I, inquiring minds would like to know. I would like to know. Because I'm like six papers a year. I'm super psyched. I was like, that was a good year. But th these guys are like off the charts, yeah. right? And, and you know, not surprisingly, they do it by not satisfying the Vancouver criteria, which mm. is like, what do you need to do to have claimed legitimate authorship? And most of these guys admitted that, in fact, they had achieved none of them on any of these papers. And these were all basically written by graduate students. And sometimes they would have read the paper, but not even always that they had actually read the paper and can guarantee it because they know what it was about, but their name is on it. Yeah, I mean, my, my interpretation was it was a little bit different only in that I, I got the sense that these people have their research that they do, and they definitely qualify for authorship on those ones. It's just right. they also, in addition, have these sort of uh, research machines that are churning out paper after paper after paper, and it's, it's hard to know whether they're actually able to read all of them. Right. So I thought it, I thought, I thought it was interesting, but what I found maybe most surprising about it is, is how many of these hyperprolific authors who admitted to not really following the Vancouver standards bemoaned the lack of adherence to the Vancouver standards and said that they really, people really should be doing that. Yep. Though I confess I am not. And so I was like, ha, well, yeah. um, anyway, I, I, I don't really imagine that I'm going to have this problem in no, my future. I, I suspect none of us around this table are ever going to have that problem. I could be so lucky. So everybody knows that academics are some of the funniest people in the world, that right? That is so true. Really funny. We, we're hysterical. So have you seen the, the hashtag that's been going around? That's the hashtag academic movie titles? No. So this is academics uh, coming up with movie titles that would explain the life of an academic. And this has been circulating on Twitter. So I'm going to give you some of my favorite ones here. Um, Rebel without a grant. <laughs> Crouching data, hidden p-value. Oh, oh no! <laughs> Silence of the editor. Uh, uh. Uh, rebel without a causal model. <laughs> a clear and present deadline. Oh no! Doctor Strange thesis. <laughs> there will be typos. <laughs> That's a good one. Reviewer two in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad article submission. <laughs> I know what you did last sabbatical, and then because I couldn't resist, I had to get in on this. The one I put in was Raiders of the Lost Journal Submission Password. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, that's anyway, that's fun with that one. That's very good. Don, you've got something fantastic for us that you're just chomping at the bit today. I don't know about so that. Go for it. All right, Matt. It better be good now. I set it up. All right. So um, what I want to report on is an experiment that was done that has not yet been published, but the um, results were announced in various public venues just over the last couple of days. And uh, so I can't cite a specific Ooh, author or a specific um, journal in which this has been published, but apparently there's a, there's a guy named Beat Wampfler, who is a veterinarian by day and a cheesemaker okay. at night. Hmm. A cheesemaker? A cheesemaker from Switzerland. What He's kind of cheese? He, specias he specializes in Emmental cheese. Oh, good stuff. Which he makes in his 19th century cellar in Bergdorf, Switzerland. Okay. And he apparently is very committed to his Emmental, but wants to make it better. And so he, along with a number of um, individuals from, where is it? It is uh, University of Bern, have a hypothesis that the maturation of cheese, the taste that occurs with the maturation of cheese is affected by sound. And so mm. he has set up a year-long experiment where he has eight 22-pound wheels of the finest Emmental 
were hooked up to mini transmitters and pumped sound straight into their curds 24-7 to see if bioacoustics have any effect on their ripening process. And wait, 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 what kind of sounds? Well, they had no sound for one group. They had ambient sound from a music group called Yellow, and they played over and over the song Monolith. They had... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, ma- the cheese got really the magic that flute was played over and over, as well as the they had, they had a good. techno music, which was Vril, and the, the song was UV. Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. They had oh, um, a, a medium a frequency choice, at 2200 hertz, a high frequency at 1000 kilohertz. They had hip hop, a tribe called Quest. We got... Love. The jazz, and then also a low frequency a group. One. And different decibel levels, or no, no, it was just the music itself. But how loud? Twenty. I don't, I don't know how loud it was. I, they, they didn't specify. We'll have to wait for the for the for the, the experiment. So um, they did this for twelve months, and they just broke open the Emmental, and they had a blinded taste test, oh. and mm. it turns out that. The Emmental that was played, A Tribe Called Quest, just fucking out, was deemed to have by far the most delicious flavor profile, having a discernibly stronger smell and stronger, fruitier taste. And for those of you interested in it, I am going to play a short section of that song responsible for a finer form of Emmental. That is great. And was it like the same milk batch for all of them? It was. It was okay. all from the same same batch. So it's a great song. And that that's the cheese. This, this that's is the cheesiest one. This is the song say, that this is the song that produced the strongest smell and the fruitier taste. Wow. So so I thought well the, the next group that we ought to we ought to taste would be Cardi Brie <laughs> <laughs> or Cheese Whiz Khalifa. Oh no! <laughs> or Gouda Chris. <laughs> That's very good. Well, did you really come up with those yourself? Or those I did not. Papers? I stole all three of those. And maybe you could you could wash it down with a nice glass of Don Perignon. <laughs> that is a um, that is a fitting tribute because we lost five this year or last year. That's right. That's wow. right. Yeah. That's very funny. So when the paper comes out, I will I will I will post it on Twitter. We should have a cheese party. Yeah. Really. All right, Chris, what do you got? Well, I, I'm going to segue right off of that because part of what I'm going to talk about is the naked mole rat, which is not a mouse. Oh, fantastic. But the naked mole rats, I, I really wanted to make the, 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 the title of this little wacky and weird, what do E. coli, naked mole rats, and elephants have in common? Hmm. But at first I'm going to talk about naked mole rats because I didn't know anything about naked mole rats until I read this paper. And I was like, wow, these sound like really fascinating creatures. And so I'll just like rattle off a couple factoids about naked mole rats, which I bet you did not know. So number one, I don't know anything about them. So they are, they are, there's, they and one other species are the only true eusocial mammals on earth. Meaning eusocial means that they, 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 their society is hive-like, that there is a queen and there are drones and most of the workers are sterile. And they basically, the naked mole rat colonies behave just like bees or ants, where there's one mm. reproductive you know, female and then when she dies, like all the, there's a group of sterile females who suddenly become sexually mature and they fight it out and become the new queen. It's just like, it's so weird. Sounds like a cult. It's like a cult, yeah. And so I, I did not know that though, I will agree. Second fun fact is in addition to being naked, they have no pain. They they have their 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 substance P reception is totally different and they don't have nociceptors. Really? They don't. Yeah. So you can't torture them. So you rat. can't torture. They have no sense of pain wow. when you pierce their skin, which wow. is weird. Third thing is they're isothermic, so they are they are non warm blooded mammals. They are, but they're not poikilotherms. No, they. I, I they, don't even know what you just said. It might be. I'm not sure. Cold, they're cold blooded. They're not cold blooded like because they, they do regulate their temperature, but they do it behaviorally, either by huddling in their den or, or by, by going up and down the the elevator, so to speak, of their burrows, oh, which wow. can go very deep into the ground in Africa. They live in Africa, and so when they're cold, they go out to where it's warm. When they're warm, they go down where it's cooler. And they, so they may regulate just by vertical migration in the burrow. The fourth thing is that they live about 30 years, oh, wow. which is like. 
like Methuselah rodents, <laughs> which is incredible. Oh. Um, and they and they have they have an incredible tolerance for for anoxia because they live in this hypo the hypoxic environment deep in the ground all the time, and they can actually survive for for 18 minutes. Has been documented in a zero oxygen environment without brain death, God. and they do this by sh- like basically shutting down their metabolism and going dormant. So they are incredible animals. God, they would be good pearl dri- they divers. Would be, <laughs> and, and the burrows of these naked mole rat colonies can extend for three or four kilometers underground. Wow. So they spend their entire lives, they're basically blind underground. And the last thing, which is what, what is the important thing, is that they have an incredibly low cancer rate, mm. which is what I was going to talk about. Because there's, I ran across this cool paper in PNAS about the pedo paradox. So, so pedo, Richard Pedo was this epidemiologist who m- made this sort of funny thought experiment that like, you know, basically stating that any time a cell reproduces, there is a potential, you know, divides, that there's a potential for a mutation to occur that would lead to cancer, right, just because of random errors over time. Mm-hmm. And so the bigger the animal you would predict, the higher the cancer rates of the animal, because in, like an elephant's cells are no bigger than ours. They just have more of them. A blue whale has more cells than we do. Are they're not bigger cells? And so there's just like, you would think that blue whales and elephants would be riddled with cancer, but they're not. And the, you know, the paradox is not really a paradox because of course, if that were true, the elephants would all be dead of cancer. It could, they couldn't possibly survive. And so the paradox mm-hmm. is that there must be a way that the elephants have figured out a, like a strategy genetically for not getting cancer. And so there's been a lot of research in this recently. And it turns out indeed that there are all sorts of very clever genetic mechanisms that lead to this. Now, one of them is through this protein called TP, tumor protein 53. And I don't know exactly what it does. One of my favorites. TP53, right. One, one thing it does is to, it senses major errors in DNA, like a big mutation, and then it triggers apoptosis so that the cell dies. Now, we humans have like one copy of the TP53 gene in our our body. And if that gene is mutated, that has a name. It's called the Lee Fraumeni syndrome. And everyone who has Lee Fraumeni, 100% will eventually develop cancer if they, if they live long enough. Elephants have like, 20 copies of the TP53 gene. And so they're like killing, they're doing apoptosis constantly. And, and it turns out that lots of other animals have different strategies for doing this too, including the naked mole rats. And they use a strategy like E. coli, which is, which is quorum sensing. So that as they get to a certain size and their cells start to cluster together, they, they, they have this tremendous inhibition to cell growth. And so they do not, they do not develop cancer. It's, uh, it, you know, well, they, occasionally they do, but it's very, very, very rare. So it was sort of oh. like an interesting experiment in like how very large animals huh. get around the, 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 the hazard of having too many cells around. Did you know that bats don't get cancer either? Yeah, and some and of them do the same thing. they thermoregulate by, um, they, they apparently can induce a fever through flying. And, and part of the immune mechanism in bats that protects them from cancer also makes them an incredibly good reservoir for exotic viruses. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. But that, actually, that kind of feels That's, like it makes sense. Yeah. Kind of, kind of it's, it's consistent with what you're saying. Uh, another huh. cool thing about the naked mole rats is, um, and there's so many cool <laughs> Obviously things. Obviously, there's more. <laughs> but, you know, a couple um, episodes ago, well, we did I think the, we should the, have them for pets. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, the, let's but, do, oh, wait, let's these do things a mole are rat episode. So, Cuddly, <laughs> ugly animals, <laughs> but they like to cuddle. They, they do, but they. It's good that they're blind because they're not attractive creatures. All right, um, we're running out of time. All right, here, I'll, 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 I'll wrap it up. I'll wrap it up. But um, the, the naked mole rats also have have like a checkpoint inhibition, so that their their immune regulation of tumor cells is 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 ramped up like way high. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's how they live thirty five years oh, without wow. getting cancer. It's like the, that that uh, pembrolizumab drug. So well? <laughs> all right, so I'm done. Yeah, all right, moving so. on. Uh, so I'm going to go back to uh, science and the business of science and the science of science. So um, we, the three of us, certainly know that science is getting harder and existing in an academic environment is getting harder. It's because all the easy facts have been found. And science is changing at the same time. And so we have all of these new metrics that people are using to try and judge the value of science. So 
you know, the H index is mm-hmm. one that people have been promoting for a while. The H index is your number of publications and that have been cited X number of times. So if you have an H index of 10, that means you have at least 10 publications that have been cited 10 times or more. And it's supposed to be this measure of, of impact, but it's all, it's a very flawed measure. Mm. Uh, so you're aware of the K index. No. no. So this was uh, pointed to me by, I'm going to make a plug for another podcast, which I really enjoy, which is the Everything Hurts podcast. Dan Quintana uh, pointed me uh, in his podcast to the K-Index. The uh, K-Index was developed by a guy named Neil Hall, and it is described in a paper in Genome Biology back in 2014. And the K-Index, K stands for Kardashian. Oh, no. (laughs) And what this is, is is uh, he developed a measure of that tries to take into account both your references that you're getting, your citations, sorry, excuse me, that you're getting, uh, or citations or references, anyway, um, and the number of Twitter followers that you have. Oh. Yes. So he's a... Uh, source and, and, and readership of source. Yeah. Are you sure it's not the Kanye index? No, no. This is the Kardashian index. And so he, he did some analysis and he found the formula that relates uh, this ratio. So the K index is equal to F of A over F of C, where F of A is the actual number of Twitter followers of researcher X, and F of C is the number of researchers X should have get, should have given their number of citations, which is in this formula that's related uh, F equals 43.3 C times to the 0.32 power. So, so this is the speed of light. Very precisely <laughs> figured out this relationship. Uh, now, uh, the idea here is that if you have a low K index, you're probably uh, not getting the publicity that you would should be deserving for your research. And if you have a very high K index, you're probably spending, uh, you, you have too many Twitter followers, you're spending too much time on that. Now, I was not able to look up Chris's uh, K index because Chris is on Twitter, but he uh, doesn't have a Google Scholar page, which is what you need to use the online calculator. But you and I both do. So I looked us up. Uh, you, no, no, you're, you're not doing very well, Don, because no. your number of, of Twitter followers is, is too low. So how, many you were, is, how many does he have? Uh, I don't know. You don't have very many, Don. No, How many do I'm you have? Few. Why? Why is that? Are Cause you? Because I, uh... I don't like Twitter. Oh, uh, same here. So yours, uh, are you going oh, to embarrass me, Matt? But yeah, Don has twenty-one Twitter followers, and but but a whole lot of citations. So his uh, his score ends up at point zero two seven. So you're not doing so well. No. Got to get some more Twitter followers. No. Wow, Kim Kardashian is a much uh, better scientist. Sandra is going to be really disappointed. My <laughs> Kardashian score was two, so I think I'm in the, they say I'm sort of in the reasonable zone. But let me just tell you how he ends this article by explaining that if your K index gets above five, then it's time to get off Twitter and write those papers. <laughs> and then he ends with, by saying, if you'd like to discuss this Further, please follow me on Twitter at, at, it gives his handle, at the time of writing, my candix is only marginally above one. So he's mm. he's clearly not getting the number of followers that he needs. So we should all go and follow him. Candix is now, I assume, what we're all going to be judged on mm. next time you go up for promotion. So better get those Twitter followers. Maybe we should gonna, change it to the Sandra index. We could do that. We could ask him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a C index before I see you guys next. Uh, I would like to know what's in the C index. I have to figure that out. All right. But it's going to have something to do with woolly mammoths. Oh, no. And thiamine. And bees. Don, what do you got? All right. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to bring the quality of the discourse down several notches. That's, as, what, we, that's what we count on you for. As I want to that do. That is why you're here. So I've got an article that was published in the journal Pediatrics and Child Health by Andrew Tag. Wait, Damian, that sounds like a real journal. Damien Roland. It is. Okay. It actually is. Um, and this article is... I can see through the back of it. That can't be a real journal. <laughs> is um, Everything is awesome. Don't forget the Lego. I, that's exactly it. I saw a Lego head through the back of your paper. So um, this everything is... Everything is awesome. This is a paper which tried to address the issue of how do you... <laughs> I can't look at the back of that. Go ahead. How do you? How do you? How do you deal with the possibility that your child may have um, may have swallowed a Lego? And oh. what it was trying to do was trying to get a sense for what is the transit time 
of a swallowed Lego head. Whoa, a Lego head. So Lego we're talking head, about not small. a block. Right. These are treacherous items. I yeah, mean, yeah. if you if you step on one of these things I was say, in the, the worst, middle of the night, the worst, the worst that, thing. The worst. In, yeah, it, absolutely. Oh. But apparently, um, swallowing them also is a concern in in UK, and um, they they reference um, another paper that looked at the time that it takes to pass a coin as being three to five days. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to figure out what is the transit time for a swallowed Lego head so that they could advise parents how, how long? long to sift through the stool of their child to try to retrieve the Lego head. Is it to retrieve it or is it just to make sure they passed it? Well, yeah, to make sure that they passed okay. it. I, I don't think they're going to reuse it. <laughs> no, they just want to be assured that, the, that it's not still in there. Yeah, got it. So they recruited six pediatric healthcare professionals um, they were recruited to swallow one wait, one Lego head. Wait, they had. <laughs> this is not an observational no, study. No, this is an intervention. Right. right. So they got six volunteers <laughs> to randomly swallow Lego heads. And the, and and Lego. The, yeah, and the exclusion criteria were <laughs> exclusion criteria were previous gastrointestinal surgery, inability to ingest foreign objects, or an aversion to searching through fecal matter. Yeah. was an exclusion <laughs> I'm criteria. In there. I'm out. I'm definitely out. <laughs> right. Right. So what they did is they also wanted to standardize the bowel habit between participants, and they developed a stool hardness and transit test, which they called the SHAT test. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> and then they also, they also determined um, what was the... This is not a joke, right? These people really joke, ate no. the Lego? Yeah, they really ate the Lego. <laughs> And then, and was then, it uh, labeled? And no, the, these individuals were tasked with searching through their stool for <laughs> oh. every subsequent bowel movement to, until they science. found. They called it uh, the found and retrieve test. Uh, no, it was, it was the found and retrieve. <laughs> Nick time. is already shaking his head. Found and retrieve time was the outcome. What do you do with it once you found it? It was the fart score. <laughs> <laughs> what journal is this? This is, <laughs> not a real this is the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health. This it's a, a real, real journal. journal. Honestly. <sighs> honestly. So they found on balance that the average transit time was less than the transit time for a coin. The, the average transit time turned out to be the fart score average. <laughs> 1.71 days, which was considerably less than the transit time for a coin. Wow. Huh. Now, this is interesting because I, I they, do, do Lego heads float? Uh, I don't think so. So the, like in the, in the gastric juices, they wouldn't like just float around in the, in the gastric soup and not, not pass, pass into the intestine? No, they passed through the pyloric sphincter and the anal sphincter, so there was not a problem. Huh. There was one individual, however, <laughs> so, so there, were, there were seven individuals who swallowed Lego heads and they retrieved six. Oh. And for the seventh individual, who happened to be a male... Um, he continued to look through, the, look, to look for the Lego head for two weeks. Whoa. So I love the way they uh, they they end this uh, the, their discussion. They you say, know what this smells of ascertainment bias. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I think that that is a high point. No, it's a low point. That's, that's, we've we've come to the bottom of our back our ways into this. Nick's going to have to be careful with this one. So oh. they say that there are some limitations to our study. The population study should not be, could not be blinded to the study outcomes as we felt it was unfair on the author's partners or colleagues to search through their waste products. We also recognize that the stool hardness and transit score is not a perfect surrogate for underlying bowel pattern, but the fact that the Participants can shat themselves without specialist knowledge, makes it an inexpensive tool. Science, you know, it, the march <laughs> is inexorable. We just have to find out. <laughs> and there's Matt's phone going off. All right. And with that, you have wasted another perfectly good hour. <laughs> <laughs> 
Excellent. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I I was I found this uh, interesting paper about the ethology of uh, interactions, human human interactions in the operating room at several hospitals. This was uh, again in PNAS, and I can pull the literature uh, the the citation if you want. But for those of you who don't know, ethology is the science of studying interactions between humans or other animals. Um, there was an ignoble award for that. Wait, in the operating room? Did you say? Yes, in humans? surgical suites. What now? Right. So ethology is not limited to animals. You can study the ethology of human-human interactions. Oh, I see. Right? Okay. So it's just the, the, the study of, in, of how organisms interact. And they can be the same species or different species. Got so it would be like, you know, how do, how do, you know, chickens establish a pecking order in, um, right. Uh, how do <laughs> people, how do chickens establish a pecking order? In like, you know, there's that kind of thing. So. Wait, in, how do they? Um, so, they peck each other. Okay, the biggest, good. The bigger chickens peck the little chickens, and 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 then pretty soon that's. Did you know this? Because <laughs> I used to own chickens until I free ranged them and they got eaten. <laughs> so, <laughs> they got, oh, okay. so the, the chickens are gone, Don. Wish oh, I had, no, really? Wish yeah, I had they, got, they got old. They got old. It was it was their time. So anyway, so what got them? Um, I don't know. Probably a coyote or a fisher or a fox. You know, yeah, we do that. So Don and I both went through this when we were medical students. That that surgeons have this sort of history of yelling at people in the operating room, and like everything kind of rolls downhill. And like the, if you're the lowest person in the totem pole, you tend to get yelled at a lot. And so they wanted to sort of study this empirically. And so they they did they did this kind of cool experiment where they had people observing what was going on in operating rooms, and they did several hundred surgeries, and they looked at who did who said what to whom, and they kind of categorized them until whether they were these were cooperative statements, meaning that there was like kind of a nice thing, like like some mentoring from the the, the surgeon to the fellow, for example, or whether these were sort of these were conflict laden. Uh, statements, um, which would be, um, you know, someone being snarky or mean or sarcastic or, or angry at someone else in the operating room. And they sort of characterized all these relationships. And what they found, not surprisingly, was that there was a tremendous gender effect of um, conflict in operating rooms that, um, and, but, but the, the way that this played out was sort of surprising that the more uh, homogeneous the operating room members were, which would be go from the, you know, the senior attending surgeon down to the the surgical fellow, down to the surgical resident, down to the scrub nurse, um, who would be the next on the totem pole, and down to the charge nurse. Oh, and the anesthesiologist would be a little bit high up. So the be surgeon to surgical fellow to surgical resident to anesthesiologist to scrub nurse to to the circulating nurse, which is the person who goes in and out of the operating room and is not scrubbed in. And then the medical student. And then the medical student at the bottom, but they didn't include medical students in this analysis. And so what they found was that the, the more that the gender of the group was homogeneous, the more conflict there was. Oh. So homogeneous. So the more like if it was all female teams, there was more conflict. If there were all male teams, there was more conflict. But if you mixed it up. But if you mixed it up, there was much less conflict. Interesting. So a mixture of male and female seemed to have an ameliorating effect. And and that has been seen in in other ethology research as well, not just in humans, but in in other uh, animal species. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But interestingly, the, um, the, the effect of increasing conflict due to homogeneity of gender was particularly pronounced if it was all male teams, where there was much more conflict than in any other Oh, that's domains. not surprising. Okay. Right. And then the other thing that was sort of interesting and maybe not surprising is that the, the, the victim of the conflict comments, like the nasty remarks, yep. was usually several steps away from the person initiating the comment. So it was so it wasn't less, a direct it was statement. less the fellow it was less the attending surgeon yelling at the fellow, but much more the attending surgeon yelling at the scrub nurse or at the charge or at the, the circulating nurse. And so it was people who were many steps away on the hierarchy oh, from the surgeon or the, whoever's initiating it. who seemed to be the victims. And so there was a, a tremendous asymmetry on who got huh. yelled at. And that the conflict almost always went down the hierarchy rather than up the hierarchy. That, well, that part doesn't surprise that's, me. That's not surprising. Yeah. And do you want to guess on which surgical specialties were, were most egregious in terms of having high levels of conflict? Cardiothoracic surgery. Bingo. Cardiothoracic, number <laughs> really? one. I know that. Followed by... Wait, how did you know that? Neurosurgery. Followed by... Orthopedic surgery. Oh uh, orthopedic surgery was on the list, but vascular surgery uh, uh, was slightly edged the mouth. Well, and the I, least <laughs> conflict was... Uh, dermatology. 
No, surgical specialty? Surgical specialty. Urology. They were very low, but there's one even lower. OBGYN? Yeah, least conflict of all was with other guys. Huh. Yeah. Wait, well, how did you know that? How did you know I, I the highest I, ones? I don't, I, don't, I, I don't have a rational reason for knowing oh, that, but knew. it's just the sum total of my experience having gone through the system. Absolutely, that would have been, those wow. would have been the first two that I would have chosen. Fascinating. Yeah. They, yeah. they tend to be cowboys. They tend to be very dominant, domineering, the very sure of themselves. Yeah. Okay. And the vascular guys, yeah. Yeah. Let's go on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing and... Uh, I, as mentioned on our last podcast, feel the amazing and amusing no longer needs an introduction, so let's just jump right into it. And I am going to take the prerogative to go first this time. So there is another podcast out there. You may not, you guys may be surprised to learn we're not the only podcast in the world. We're, only, we're the only really excellent podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So, so there's, a, so there's sure. another podcast that I, I do enjoy um, called Everything Hurts. I've mentioned it on the podcast before. It's written by two guys, one of whom is, is at uh, Northeastern, right down the road, uh, a guy named James Heathers. And James Heathers was also instrumental in, so remember earlier we talked about the Brian Wansing studies, the, the uh, nutrition studies that, that had all kinds of problems and a bunch of clever uh, researchers unearthed all these problems and, and eventually most of those studies were actually retracted. Uh, he was one of them. He was one of the guys who pinned it on him, you mean? Not one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of the guys who outed the, all these problems. Well, James Heathers is also a, he's also a very amusing person. And he is joined Twitter, and he's got fantastic Twitter postings. And I, I didn't get a chance to to look up. I will do it exact while I'm speaking. But he it looks like he has about sixty eight hundred Twitter followers. Okay, now just mm, about a month ago, I would say he launched a new Twitter handle, which now has fifty five thousand followers despite the fact that it has only been in existence for a short period of time and has only put out 69 tweets. Wow. And the <sighs> Twitter handle is at just saying mice. Just saying mice? Just say mice in mice. Oh. Or actually just says in mice, but just, just says in mice. And the entire Twitter handle, he just puts out articles that come out in the popular press that you know claim some big claim so just looking at one of them on here <laughs> so uh you know things like stop drinking protein shakes beverages may lead to weight gain depression and shorter lifespans and things like that and then he just tweets out in mice <laughs> because all these studies were done in mice, in mice. <laughs> seriously that's awesome a new drug could let us eat anything without gaining weight in mice and these are all mice experiments. There are no human, no human, ex human studies at all. No human, and yet they get huge headlines of all these different things. <laughs> wow. And so and he's he is got just putting together this website. Thousand followers. That's great. Tweeting out. That's beautiful. One good for him. Words, good for him. That's that's hysterical. In mice. Uh, so just, you should all go follow. Is it like hashtag in mice or something? Or or no, no. It's just uh, it's a it's a Twitter handle at just just says in mice. Uh -huh. Just <laughs> says in mice. Beautiful. Oh, that's good great. for him. It's fantastic. I love that. So I ha I'm reaching back also. Uh -huh. um, so I've, I've, I've pulled a paper that was published in um, Studies in Conservation. There we go. So it was published in Studies in Conservation 1990 by um, Paula Romayo, Al uh, Adila Alcaro, and Cesar Viana. And they noted the fact that apparently there is an adage that the best way to clean um, your gold leaf or the best way to clean um, fragile painted layers on low-fired ceramics like clay objects and painted cork is using human saliva. This is an adage? People Apparently, say this? Apparently those in the conservation um, uh, industry where they have old artifacts made of gold leaf and of pottery say that the best way to clean these objects is 
I honestly you, thought you were using gonna, human saliva. I honestly should, thought you were going to say there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And you were going to tell us that was wrong. <laughs> there yeah. are several ways. There's not. There's only one way. So the title of this paper is "Human Saliva is a Cleaning Agent for Dirty Surfaces." So okay. they wanted Does. to explore whether, in fact, this is true. So compared to what else? Compared to using your sister's hold on, toothbrush. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> to methyl heptane, xylene, or white spirits. Okay. So they're, okay, they're yeah, comparing that's what I it used. To, uh, to other other cleaning agents. Methylheptane is what I go for. And what they what they did was that they did um, side by side comparisons with all of those various um, objects or mm-hmm. all, various cleaning solvents, and um, looked at the ability of saliva in comparison to all of those to be able to clean oil paintings or gold leaf or um, pottery. And they found that saliva was far superior really? to any of those other substances. And then what they did was they they they, they um, ran it through various procedures to try to isolate from human saliva what is the fraction that's actually ca- most active in terms what of the, the cleansing effect. And it turns out the that ingredient? alpha amylase mm. is an enzyme which is found in high concentration in human saliva, which is particularly beneficial in terms of... Um, cleaning these various substances. Wow. The, uh, and they say that one of the reasons for saliva having good cleaning power on dirty surfaces, one class of enzymes, lipases, catalyzes degradation of fatty substances and other classes, oh, hydrolases, catalyzes degradation of hydrolytic substances. However, one of the hydrolases, alpha amylase, seems to be principally responsible for the excellent cleaning power of saliva. Wow. So we so should... this is the, really the basis of spit shine. Okay, oh, so I got a question. Wow. I got a question. Did, did they look at all at how effective it is when you're when you're a little kid and your mother licks her finger and then rubs it on your face to try and get the ice cream off? No, that was a, that's that's, that's a, a follow-up, follow-up study. That's yeah. going to be a follow-up. All right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So were they were they licking the objects? <laughs> Or do they extract the saliva? They have a bucket of saliva? No, oh, no. no. They had a they had a little pipette. And they stuck it in your mouth and they and sucked s- out the saliva. Uh, and they sucked out some saliva. Yeah. Wow. Like a saliva you know, trap. We are curiously um, uh, germaphobic about so many things, so many inanimate objects. Like you would think that like licking your chandeliers would be a terribly dangerous <laughs> thing to do and you would not do that. But like there's so much romanticism about kissing people, which is like a, a if you think about it empirically, a very unwise thing to do. <laughs> that is a direct inoculation. It's very popular. Yeah, it is. I heard <laughs> Chris, what do you got for us? You go first. Well, this time. you know, I'm sure you guys all saw the very exciting news about the gigantic black hole photograph oh, yeah, that's that was in the so center cool. of our galaxy in the constellation so of Sagittarius cool. that weighs 200 billion suns worth of mass and is awesome. slowly sucking up solar systems and suns at a voracious rate and will eventually destroy our entire galaxy, including us. <laughs> I thought that this was like, this was a really important well, one. I was well, going to go I'm for it. Sad. And then I, I came across another paper that was even more important, a paper that, you know, cause I think that the, the galactic destruction and the complete annihilation that's, of all life as we know important. it will be important, <laughs> but th- that is probably only important to maybe a couple hundred thousand people on the planet, maybe a few million at best. When you get right oh. down to it. And tomorrow, no one will care. Right. But there is something that people are really interested in. Drum which roll. Is, which is, <laughs> can cats learn their names? <laughs> and that's what I'm going to talk oh. about today, is can oh cats learn their names? Stuff. And yeah. I'll tell you, they can. But these guys had to prove it, and they published it in Nature. This is a great study. It's called <laughs> Domestic Cats, Felis Catus, Discriminate Their Names from Other Words by Saito and colleagues in this month's NatureCom Scientific Reports. <laughs> I, uh, who funded, who funded I have this? To say, who funded this? I have to say, I almost brought the same really? I didn't, I it's a great this paper. One. Yeah. It's a great paper. Oh, it's a great, so great, we, great we know study. that dogs know their names. Yeah. Like, it's so obvious. Yeah. Yeah, but, but there are 600 million cat owners on this planet. Did you know that? How would you know if a cat knew its ah, name? You have to because do an experiment. cats won't respond to you right, no matter the what. Cats, you know, I, have, I have these tea towels at home care. that are great. They're like the dog tea towels and the cat tea towels and on the dog tea towel you have like fetch and roll over and play dead and beg and you know sit and wag and each and each has got a little picture of a dog doing exactly that thing and then you have the cat tea towel with all the same commands like sit roll over dig and the cats are just sitting there <laughs> paying no attention yep. at all to whatever you tell them. 
So you might very well they assume that the cats do not recognize language, but they, but cat cat owners so, think passionately this is not true. What did they do? What did they do? So they did an experiment where they got cats and cat owners, and they would read them a series of words that initially this was the first experiment. They would say like, this was all in Japanese. So I, I'll, but I'll say it in English. They said like fish, dog, bunny, you know, chocolate. Fluffy. Mittens. And then <laughs> right. mittens, right? And so the, the purpose of the first four words was to sort of like control for the cat's attention just to any noise. Uh, like, oh, my master is saying something. And so, you know, predictably, for uh, the first word, they would prick up their uh, ears okay. and they'd listen. Hang on, hang on, hang on. A cat does not think of a person as its master. <laughs> True, good point. As the per- <laughs> in its feeder, as its feeder and, <laughs> and, you know, it's tummy warmer and scratching post. Yeah. <laughs> so they would give these four control words first that all had to have the same number of syllables and they would say them in a monotone so there was no emotional inflection. And then they would say the cat's name. And then they had this cat rating, it's like attention rating scale, which, which was just, you have to, the rubric is a great... Because it's not like dogs, where the dog is like, woof, 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 and looks right at you and, like, gets really excited. With and cats, it's, it's subtle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cats, hit us, hit us. they have the <laughs> ear twitches, head moves slightly, <laughs> looks at you, tail twitches, oh. and maybe gets up and moves. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that was, that's the scale. That was the scale. Because we're not looking for big effects here with the cats. We're just looking for any acknowledgement <laughs> that it heard you... At all. <laughs> so they did this experiment, and sure enough, the cats preferentially respond to their names. Come on. So when you get to Fluffy, they're like, what? You know, they don't move. But they're like, yeah. So they <laughs> you like, said my name. I heard you say my name. What's up? <laughs> so then they did it again, like looking at like people who had multiple cats. And they wanted to see if like in a house with like five cats, will each of the cats recognize its name as opposed to all the names? Because you can imagine like when you're feeding the cat, you go ting, ting, ting on the can. You say, come here, fluffy bunny, you know, honey, you know, name of ex-husband and, you know, and, and then they all come running. And you don't know if it's because they're all like seeing all the other cats running and they're running because it's dinner time or because they heard right. their names. So what they do? And so they did the same thing where they would like uh-huh. do the controls using the other cats' names. In front of all the cats? In front of one cat at a time. Uh-huh. And then see when they finally got to the actual cat's name, whether the cat would respond to its name preferentially, which it did. So they, they again, they, they know their names. But then they did the same experiment in a, in a cat cafe. You know what a cat cafe is? It's I do like not. These people, it's like people who feel depressed and love cats and they go to a cat cafe and there's like cats everywhere. Oh, right, right, and they right, go right. and drink coffee and, right. and tea and eat crumpets and pat the cats. And the cats are like so used to people like saying yeah, yeah. Fluffy Bunny when it's not Fluffy and Bunny, it's the other cat's name, right? And so they just like, they want to know in that milieu, will the cats respond to their names? And the answer is kind of no, they don't really. The cats have sort of forgotten their names and they're just like, whatever, they're ignoring all the humans so all the time. So what happened? And then they did another experiment where they they wanted to see, well, what happens if if someone else calls the cat's name other than the owner? Like, mm. is it contextual on the owner's voice plus the cat's name? Mm. And it turns out that even if Don calls my cat Jackson, Jackson will respond to Don more than it will if you say, that it like, just happens to be the name brick. of my son. Right. But with all that said, the cats don't come running they twitch an ear no, they, look at you they slightly, turn their head yawn four degrees to the tail left. twice <laughs> and maybe <laughs> roll over to face away from you <laughs> but reproducible so the bottom line of this critical scientific question is cats definitely do know their names they do not know that you're talking to them I, but they just choose to ignore you I, I, I so love know, that this was published in nature <laughs> it was a very good study actually I thought it was quite clever uh. So, good news or bad news, depending on your perspective. And I've got a paper that was a, uh, it was actually a correspondence in the journal Nature. So, the three of us, we have to go to conferences from time to time, and we have to listen to talks by various speakers. How many, how many talks can you listen to in one day? Before you just totally tune out? One. One. Yeah. One. One. <laughs> and how long into a talk... How long into a talk before you start to zone out? About a minute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so <laughs> the, I go uh, to the art museum in the, the town. <laughs> so this uh, article was by Professor Robert uh, Ewers, right from right here at Imperial College in London. I'm also at Imperial College this semester, but it is at a different campus, so I can't go knock on his door to to find out more about this. But um, he uh, wrote this article, this correspondence in uh, Nature. It is exactly three paragraphs long. 
and it is entitled Boring Speakers Talk for Longer. <laughs> so <I'll, laughs> That's probably true. I like it. I will just read you the, the middle paragraph, which says, I investigated this idea, the idea that, that boring speakers speak for longer. I investigated the idea at a meeting where speakers were given 12-minute slots. I sit out on 50 talks for which I recorded the start and end time. I decided masochism. I decided whether the talk was boring after four minutes, long before it became apparent whether the speaker would run over time. The 34 interesting talks lasted on average a punctual 11 minutes and 42 seconds. The 16 boring ones dragged on for 13 minutes and 12 seconds, thereby wasting a statistically significant 1.5 minutes. That he'll never get back. For every 70 seconds that a speaker droned on, the odds that their talk had been boring doubled. That is so, so there true. There you go. So true. Keep it short is the message. That's right. All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the animal kingdom and stick with humans, and uh, I'm going to talk about a paper that appeared in Medical Hypotheses in 2009 by George Steinhauser, and George Steinhauser was um, made the observation himself, as did his uh, mates and his family, that there are certain individuals that collect navel lint mm. at a much no, there are not. at a much higher rate than other individuals. We're not talking about the navy, not oh, the navel. Oh, you mean rent. navel? Right, <laughs> lint. And so he. But, and when you say belly collects, buttons. belly buttons, you just mean you just mean that it collects, not as opposed to I am a no, collector no, no, no. of. He was not. He he did not collect <laughs> other people's. <laughs> Belly button lint. However, he did. That's a Chris Gill, April 2019, <laughs> in a little test tube. I'm telling you, he wanted he wanted to know what are the characteristics that 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 um, are associated with collecting lint, and what lint in and, and what lint consists of. Like any inniness, outiness. Oh, no. So he collected his own navel. And he calls it fluff. He doesn't call it lint. His own navel flip. 503 Whoa. pieces of navel fluff were collected for over a year, and he weighed each one of them. And then he analyzed the composition of them. Gross. And then he did a series of experiments with himself and other individuals and determined that it's the presence of belly hair in a circular fashion, growing in a circular fashion around the belly button that is, is what induces the collection of lint. Why some people... It's like a so, pe so people who have more circumferential hair around their navel tend to collect lint more than people who don't, which about, is why men tend to have belly button lint more than women what do. What about being chubby? Oh. He didn't. He didn't specify that. Although he did experiments where he he shaved his own belly hair and the <laughs> lint didn't collect. And then he did a, he did an analysis of the composition of the of the lint and found that most of it was cellulose in nature. How about that? Meaning that it came from your undershirt. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is but fascinating. There were, there were also there was also a fairly large amount of lipids and cellular material and how about ecto ectoparasites no <laughs> no he didn't look oh. for ectoparasites but um <laughs> oh that is so so gross. did they use principal components analysis here so so <laughs> the most abundant mass was observed for the range of 1.2 to 1.29 milligrams per collection and it's the amount of lint that you collect at the end of the day the average value is 1.82, but there were a few that were massive, four milligrams of belly wow. button lint. And he has a graph that he has here, which he has the count and the size of the various Ooh. different belly button sizes. So there was, some at, there was one out here that was nine milligrams. So what's the median? The median Gross. was 1.82 milligrams. Wow. And, now um, I know. And 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 he he, he felt like <laughs> with goodness. his belly button, the maximum carrying capacity was uh, in the neighborhood of about eight to nine milligrams of belly wow. button lint. The carrying capacity of science wow. marches on. I it love it. Important to know oh, these things. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's not as great. important as a, as a as a black hole, but yeah. almost. Yeah, similar. <laughs> Quite similar. Wow.